When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Trish, you know I get a bit melancholy sometimes and I worry about Mm. how long I've got left and everything. Yes, death maths, death maths. Um, Well, this morning I was really jolly. I'd done my bit of yoga. I was perky. I was thinking, I've got this. I feel great. And then I thought, I'll just pick up that stuff that's just been popped through my door. And normally I don't take things personally, but I've taken this a bit personally. Go on. Well, Is it a mobility scooter? In my door, I've been given a leaflet and I thought it said a cruelty-free dining experience. And I thought, that's interesting. I'm all for cruelty-free, vegetarian. Mm. And you're on my wavelength. Bespoke post. No, it says cutlery-free <laughs> dining experience. <laughs> what? It says, join us. I took this really personally. Yeah. Join us to sample cutlery-free dining choices. This is this is for residents who find manipulating cutlery for various reasons oh. a barrier to enabling them it's to eat independently. Home. Yes, Trish. Oh, now, right. I know the time will come. And I know, I mean, I know which one will look after me. I think it might be the older <laughs> one. <laughs> Number two, just have me thrown on the street, right. I think. I know yes. the time will come, but I did take it really. And then I, was, I went from up to down, To down, Trish, oh dear. My cutlery-free dining. Well, you see, I think that you already do quite a lot of cutlery-free dining. What with your hobnobs, your your, your marmite on toast, and uh, lumps of cheese. So you don't need cutlery for any of that. So you're already halfway there. Maybe it's a trend. Maybe it's actually a new mm. modern trend. Yes. Younger people, cutlery-free dining. Oh, I might start that as a business. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Right, I'm going to turn this week's show upside down and start with a nostalgia noodle uh, because I've, I've had a strange turn of events oh, okay. that I need to fill you in on. Um, it's also a bit of a name drop too. Don't tell me. You've gone back in time and you've remembered yes. that you, it wasn't Courtney Cox that was pulled on stage for Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it was you. You've had a flashback, yes. haven't you? Yes, exactly. Have you remembered that you were once the fifth member of um, Brotherhood of Man? Do you remember that? <laughs> I was singing that the other day. This is for me. <laughs> yes, I've had a random, random <laughs> false memory syndrome. No, it's none of that. I mean, I know the celebrity stakes are very high with you, but I think this one might make you chuckle because it's actually to do with my Tottenham Hotspur cushion. The cushion <sighs> has made the another cushion, appearance on the podcast. Basically, as apart from Margot as the other star of the podcast, I am intrigued. So I'm going to explain to anyone who may not yes. listen to 10,000 episodes of Postcards from Midlife. Trish, in one of our nostalgia mm. noodles, Trish talked about how she embroidered the Tottenham Hotspur logo onto <laughs> a cushion for her O-level needlework classes. And for those of you who don't know what the logo is, it's a cock on a ball. Yep. How is that relevant to what we're talking about today? Let me tell you. Are you yeah. sitting comfortably? I am excited. It's sort of a slightly long story. Can you cope with that? Is it like one of Ronnie Corbett's monologues? <laughs> I've got my tea. I've got my hobnobs. I'm gripping the side of my chair, Trish. 
And your big old old person's armchair. That's yeah. good. Right. Well, listen, it started... Free dining experience in front of yes, you. Yes, exactly. Go. It started with yet another one of those random emails that we get in our <laughs> inbox. Um, and I was invited, me, not you, can I just say. In this, I don't know why. This. Exactly. Yes, no, normally it's both one. of us. Yeah, well, exactly. But I was invited by this health tech company called Boira to speak to Tottenham legend and former England manager, Glenn Hoddle. Now, he was in the FA Cup winning side that I made the cushion in honour of because I went to that game way back in the 80s at the long ago original Wembley Stadium. Shut the Can front door, it? Trish, as my teenagers <laughs> would say. You went to the, the game, the game. I went to the game, yes. So many secrets that you keep <laughs> from me. You're not making it up, are you? It's not one of your dreams, one of them funny fantasies that you have. Glenn Hoddle, elastic pants, cock on a ball, Tottenham Hotspur fantasies. Oh my God. Well, I may have had a slight crush on Mr. Hoddle back in the day. That's inexplicable. Fact, think, Completely inexplicable. Well, I don't know. I don't think so. Because I think you and I could have gone on a double date with him and uh, Chris Waddle. Because do you remember that? <laughs> Hoddle and Waddle. They, they had a, a top 40 hit. Do you remember it? Do you know what it was called? No, go on. It was called, Di- I'm going to get this wrong, it was either Diamond Lights or Diamond Nights. Like, I can't- None of <laughs> and it I can't remember it, so I can't sense. sing it for you. Thank I God can't sing it for you, exactly. <laughs> I do remember um, they had mullets, didn't they, yes, on the top of the pops did. thing. Anyway, back to Glenn. Glenn and you, health email, what happened next? This is what happened next. So, unfortunately, Glenn, poor old Glenn, had a cardiac arrest a couple of years ago in a TV studio when he was commentating on some football game. And his life was actually saved by a sound engineer who gave him CPR. And he's sort of, since then, he's been a campaigner for heart health and getting le- people to learn how to do CPR ever since. So I got to have a chat with him because he was promoting something called the Life Pad, which Boira makes. And they do kind of blood pressure monitors yeah. and all those kind of useful things that as we get older, we should definitely have in our houses. Not cutlery, and it's this No cutlery not in <laughs> No, exactly. No technological cutlery. Yeah. But it's this sort of small mat that you can roll up actually you can literally keep it in your handbag or in the car or wherever so that if you were in a situation where someone had a cardiac arrest you place it on their chest and switch it on and it shows you where to put your hands it tells you how hard to press how frequent to press etc etc so if you don't have a clue how to do cpr like me i do keep meaning to go on a course um that could be something that's really useful it costs about 60 pounds you can get it in argos in fact wow interesting fact i do know how to do cpr <laughs> <I> do. <laughs> I went along because as a, a young person and a teenager, my dad had four heart attacks. <laughs> oh, gosh, So throughout yeah, my childhood, we were kind of, and so it was always forefront of my mind. And when the kids were born, I thought, you know, you get a bit obsessive about their health and babies and oh, things. Yes, and I thought, what happens if I have to, you know, revive baby at any point? So I went and did a couple of courses. So that is a skill I Would have. Would you still remember it? Would you still remember? Well, I think I know where to put my hands. I think it oh, was in do. my... I can do it on a very small baby as well. Just oh, okay. Just those four fingers oh, below, two, yeah. two fingers below the chest. Anyway, so what's that got to do with the cushion and Glenn? <laughs> We've gone off. <laughs> We've veered of right off. I Come know. On. It's a shaggy dog story, isn't it? So, well... Did you tell him about the cushion? Not only did I tell him about it, but I showed it to him. You had an audience with Glenn Hoddle. I had an, a Zoom audience with Glenn, so I could see him in his he was oh, in his bedroom man. during these interviews. Um, anyway, I showed him the cushion. He must have done about four in a row. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then thought, hold on a minute. It's a yes. super fan. It's a super fan with a cushion. And it, it took him sort of a moment, split second, to think, <laughs> what the hell is she sort of shoving in the camera here? And then he got it and he, he loved it. Made him, I made him laugh, made Glenn Hoddle laugh. And um, would you like to hear what he said? Because we've got a little clip. I recorded it. Excellent. I'll tell you what, that is very close to the, uh, the new cockerel on the shirt, which changed a few years back, if you noticed. Ah, right. There's a cockerel out there now that is simplified, actually. It resembles your cockerel there. Well done. You're ahead of your time. (laughs) (laughs) So there we have it. Glenn Hoddle says, I am ahead of the times. He loved my design, my my logo, my cock on the ball. (laughs) I'm looking at the cushion now. (laughs) So I don't know where you go with this huge success, whether you go down the crafting route, (laughs) (laughs) take that up, or whether you just do an audience with old heroes from the 80s, old footballing heroes. Is that your new thing, maybe? 
well, it's like a dream come true. I mean, if you told 14-year-old me that one day I would interview Glenn Hoddle and he would admire my needlework, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? Well, it's inexplicable, Trish. I don't think anyone would have been able to. None of it makes any sense at all. It's like a, it's like a, just like a dream, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the show because um, we've got another bit of a teen dream yes. scenario coming up. Uh, it doesn't involve needlework. We are going to get to be Kathy and Claire. And after we solve some of our midlife dilemmas, we're going to be talking to a special guest this week, the groundbreaking comedian, campaigner and midlife mum of three, Angie Lamar. And she's going to be talking to us from Jamaica, Trish. Oh, that is so exciting. And um, as we're about to unleash our problem-solving words of wisdom, <laughs> we should probably give a warning, shouldn't we? Yeah. Um, Everything comes with a warning, Trish, for us, doesn't it? Don't show. take it seriously oh, and don't sue us. God, yes, absolutely. Um, we should give a warning that our alter egos, Marion and Millie, will also be sharing their pennies worth, which might not be... No. The I'm going to explain Marion and Millie mm. again. Uh, Marion, based on someone who once emailed us and told us to stop talking drivel, is a kind of prudish, passive-aggressive Marion. Um, yes. And Millie is a confused, furious, feminist <laughs> militant. <laughs> yes, slightly elements of our own personality yes. between the two of them. Anyway, we have three pivotal questions. Let's find out what they are and what we think about them. Right, agony aunts at the ready. We have three problems to solve this week, Lorraine. I'll kick off by reading the first one and you tell me your thoughts. All names have been changed for confidentiality and as usual, I have selected the names on a theme and you have to guess the link, Lorraine. It's always a quiz, isn't it? Come on, fire (laughs) away. We're about to do good work for people. Okay, right. This first one is from Virginia, who says, I've been married for more than 20 years and on the whole would say we have a strong and happy relationship and we have built a great life together. However, there is one thing that has always bugged me about my husband, which I think is getting worse. He just doesn't listen to me. He never remembers where I'm going, what I'm doing, or if I have a big presentation at work, even though I always tell him either at the beginning of the week or in the morning before I leave the house. I find it hurtful that he doesn't ask me specifically about those things. He might ask how my day's been, but always after I ask him how his has been, but he won't remember the specifics. Um, Sometimes I wonder if he even notices I'm there. I did an experiment last weekend by letting him talk for 20 minutes about the latest SAS book he's reading and deliberately didn't ask any questions or join in, but he just kept going without asking me my thoughts or opinions. And frankly, obviously, I'm not interested in that. How do I get him to pay more attention to me and be more interested in what is going on in my life? What say you, Lorraine Candy? Caveat this with the fact that we've interviewed a lot of therapists, haven't we, Trish? And we've Mm -hmm. written a lot of things. So this is not off the top of our head advice. But We've got a midlife audience there, Gen X. Gen X men, sadly, aren't big listeners. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are big interrupters and they are big talkers, but this is not always their fault. So we know that is the context. I would ask our lovely Virginia, I think I've got the theme of the names. I would ask our lovely Virginia to think about it from his point of view. I know that might not be her immediate thought because she's obviously quite cross, but he may Mm. be fearful of what he's going to say. He may be fearful of getting it wrong. He may be fearful of not understanding. He may be fearful you are cross with him because I think that sometimes happens. Certainly, well, when Mr. Candy had a hearing, one of those annual hearing tests, he came back gleefully saying, look, I'm not deaf. I'm not deaf. And I said, well, that's not good news. You're just not listening then, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he it's very hard for men of that generation, I am generalizing, to feel vulnerable. Um, But you obviously feel quite vulnerable. Not being heard is really a central part of Mm. someone's identity. And we always talk about it with teenagers. You know, if you're not being heard, you feel and you feel invisible. It does create quite a sadness around you. Perhaps at the beginning of the conversation, when you want him to listen, you could ask more directly rather than just expecting him to listen. And you could say, I'm telling you this because I just want to be heard. I'm telling you this because I want you to advise me or I want you to fix this. I'm telling you this because it's important to me. Can you listen and make time to listen? So I think that's, it's a kind of feminine energy in a way to ask Mm. that. And I think he may be in that place where he is a little bit confused and his nervous system immediately goes to, I don't know what's happening. What is she offering me here? 
what do I need to do? So I think you need to set the scene up when you want him to listen to you. And it's like that thing we talk about a lot, Trish, isn't it? Habits, getting into habits mm. of, mm-hmm. you know, and it can start with, you know, very small conversations and can that like more of a closeness because poor Virginia is obviously really, really cross with him. So she's obviously possibly mm. coming into that conversation in quite a defensive stance and anyone, any male is going to be immediately defensive back and all Mm -hmm. their kind of understanding cognitive skills will just stop immediately because they're just getting through that. Perhaps he might just be ignoring you because that's his habit and perhaps you need to point it out in a more forceful way and ask him what's going on, but really listen to him as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think all these little things of, you know, we've, we've said before, getting closer to him physically, being kind, adding some laughter into life. Are you listening to him or are you quite cross Mm -hmm. when he starts talking about things like his SAS book? So, Mm -hmm. you know, he might not feel listened to as well. So that's where my upbeat therapy voice comes from. Yes. Okay. So shall I add my Add your therapy thoughts on this. And before we get on to the the two... um, (laughs) Four million Marion step in. Yes, exactly. Right. So no, I totally agree because it's it's about communication, isn't it? And it sounds like she says he's always been like this, but this is really annoying her. So it sounds like it's probably been building and there's been some resentment, which means there hasn't been some proper communication going on for a while. So clearly they have a good relationship. She's generally, she's very happy, but maybe they just need to put a bit of the spotlight in life onto the relationship and, and onto their communication. And also it's so easy to get into kind of just rubbing along and getting through the day and, and all of that. But we don't show our appreciation for each other, I think, a lot of the time. So, yeah. So it's how do you appreciate each other? And in terms of the SAS book, I mean, I have to confess, I often switch off when Neil is going on yeah. that World War Two book or engines I'm or a bit more forced. I'm long. a bit Millie. I just said Are I'm really you? not interested in – I won't be able to add to your thoughts on this, so please take it somewhere else. Well, sometimes I just sort of switch off and let him carry on and he doesn't. And sometimes I actually ask some questions and find myself quite interested in what he's got to say. So it is that, you know, Mm. are you showing an interest in each other's sort of interests and passions, I would say? Well, also when you ask is really important as well, because sometimes my husband will be telling me a great long story while I'm doing something else. And that was fine when I was in my early 40s. Now I can only do one thing at a time. Yes. If he's talking to you or if perhaps she's talking to him while he's doing something else or or engaged in something else, it's quite hard. Mm. I always think it's worth looking at our own place in what really, really annoys us, because often what really annoys us about someone else is what annoys us about us as well, isn't it? And it's asking for what you want, not what you don't want. Because if you say what you don't want, that sounds like complaining, doesn't it? So it's trying to kind of, yeah, reframe it. Tell me, what would Marion say? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think Marion's quite pleased with Virginia's passive aggressive, you know, not talking during the SAS. She's like very on board with that. Um, And she suggests that you should talk him through all the details of this week's postcards from midlife episode and see, see what he has to say about that. But I think her most extreme would say, dump him and find somebody else who is a true mind reader. Is Paul McKenna available? Because that's what we all want, right? A mind reader. (laughs) Millie's throwing some figures at him because Millie knows from surveys that men stop listening after six minutes, apparently. They tune out. (laughs) She also knows that men are 33% more likely to interrupt women. So Millie says, get a great big megaphone, stand by his ear... (laughs) Tell him those figures. Say this is from the no shit Sherlock list of surveys about men interrupting, yes, talking over yes. women, etc. Mm. And say that uh, if he doesn't listen next time, she's going to run off with a personal trainer who's 25 years younger. Yeah, that's it. That's the answer. That's what Millie says, even though that's against her feminist background. Personal trainer could be male or female, doesn't care. <laughs> she's out the door. Right. Next. Come on, let's move it on. Move it on. So, this is a teenager's pairing. It's from Marjorie. Let's work out the theme. We've had Virginia, it's Marjorie. Should we leave it to the end? We'll leave it to the end. My 19-year-old daughter is a student and has had a weekend job for the last six months. In that time, she has called in sick three times. I'm not always convinced that illness is genuine, so I find it really hard to be sympathetic. I've always been a go-to-work-unless-your-head-has-fallen-off type of person. (laughs) So Gen X, isn't it? Mm. Today is her third call-in, and she says she has terrible stomach pains. I've basically ranted at her about toughening up, 
and how she'll end up losing this job if she doesn't show some consistency. How do I deal with this? Sometimes I feel I'm being too harsh, but it's really annoying for me to watch. And on top of that, my partner is moaning about how it will look to her employer, which obviously I know. Any thoughts? What do you think, Trish? Oh, dear. Marjorie, Marjorie. Well, Marjorie, your daughter is 19. So technically, she's an adult. So um, not really a child, is it? It's not a child. I mean, I could sum it up with saying, I just think you need to leave her to it. (laughs) But she's obviously, to your credit, she's obviously had good, diligent, hardworking role models in you and your husband in terms of work ethic. So you've, you've set the groundwork, right? You've role modeled for her. But, you know, did it benefit our generation to go in with our limbs falling off? And no, our... Trish, it did oh, not. Oh, God, exactly. So I think it probably mess- made us less kind of more judgmental <laughs> about our colleagues, which, you know, on the whole, hasn't done anything really no. to help women in the workplace and all the, the extra demands um, that we have to navigate. I would say as long as she's taking responsibility, phoning in, not leaving them in the lurch, Bring her a cup of tea and a hot water bottle because she'll remember that forever and you will all forget about this job because it's a part-time weekend job. But she'll remember her lovely mummy looking after her and being kind to her, won't she? She will. And obviously, um, I think for Marjorie, it's triggering something inside, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Around kind of, she's probably feeling incredibly anxious that her daughter, and it's reflecting on her in some way, that mm. her daughter, and this is all an internal conversation because it's clearly not, but it'll be happening perhaps inside Marjorie, but it's not your job, Marjorie. It's her job. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. her problem, and she should be fixing it herself. It's her failure, basically, and she should be allowed to fail. And we've talked about teenagers and failure, haven't we, on mm-hmm. the podcast last week with Elizabeth Day. It might be worth finding out what's going on is there something making her anxious about going to this particular Mm -hmm. job because your need to sort of get there and do it and and be there every time no matter what even if your head's fallen off is not not the way she works but maybe there's something going on underneath you know that conversation you're having internally means you haven't noticed something else that might be happening with her no it's not you're not blaming you that just might be you just don't see it Mm -hmm. so why has she called in three times what else is she doing when she's, <laughs> you know, what, what, is she, what is her need on, on the day she doesn't go to work? I think that's worth looking at as well. It's, I just think she should be allowed, as we've said, to fail herself and deal with yeah. it herself. Yes. What does Millie think, though? Millie Tant says, you can do hard things. <laughs> <laughs> Millie Tant says, <laughs> this is from the... From from one of my gurus who I love, the, the author Glennon Doyle, you can do yes. hard stuff. So um, I, I don't really agree with that. Oh, I don't even think Millie would agree with that slightly boomer generation. I had to do mm. it, so you have to do it too. But I think she might be a little bit more, you can do hard things. How are you going to do it? Maybe you need to get out the door. And perhaps if you don't... Um, this is then, the daughter. This is the yes, daughter, the daughter needs, needs to do it. Needs right, to do it. Maybe right, some right. shower privileges or... <laughs> Some other privileges of living at home with mum and dad might be removed if you don't uh, test out the hard things theory. Right. What's Marion saying? Well, Marion obviously wholeheartedly approves of the ranting. um, (laughs) And she says she would also add in several hours of seething and harumphing around the house for good measure. Because obviously that's going to make everyone feel a whole lot better, isn't it? (laughs) I think. Thanks for that, Marion. Very helpful. Thanks, (laughs) Marion. Right, what's next up? We have Claire. Should we do yeah. it now? Do you yeah. know? Go on. They're all agony aunts, aren't they? they Virginia are. Ironside. Uh, Marjorie Proops. Proops. Can I, I know Marjorie Proops. I knew Marjorie Proops. Can I tell Did you my you? Marjorie Proops story? So I started at the Daily Mirror when I was 19. I started doing shifts. One year I had to help Marjorie go through her. A bride was winning her wedding, being paid for, yes. and they were being oh, interviewed, nice. the engaged couple, before they got married. And you had to, Marjorie was going to pick the winner, but I had to sift, sit next to her. Oh, and help her. And help her do it. Yeah, what a little privilege that was. Do you remember who you picked? They might be listening. We picked a couple that argued because Marjorie said to me, oh. if anyone says in their letter, we never argue, discard them immediately because only <laughs> healthy relationships have arguing. There's no point if you do agree. 
Yeah, they were very young, though. I do remember thinking, God, they're not much older than me, and I'm only about 19. <laughs> well, they might be listening. We're yes. going to have to find that out, do some research. Anyway, right. head on, head on. Finally, we have Claire, who says, I can't stop comparing myself to my friends. I stepped back from a high-flying career a few years ago because of stress, and I now work part-time in a totally different field, which has allowed me, for the first time ever, to be around for my children. My husband and I agreed we were both okay with cutting back our spending because I was always the major breadwinner. And on the whole, I'm happy with my new life. But my friend's job seemed to go from strength to strength, promotions, bigger salaries and opportunities to travel abroad. When we meet, I no longer talk about my job as it just doesn't have the same status as theirs. And afterwards, I always think that maybe I should get back on the corporate ladder. But have I left it too late? How do I work out what I really want to do and stop being envious of other women? This is a common one, isn't it? Comes up a lot. I look yes. at what they're doing, and I think I should be doing that too. And also, you f- you can feel a little bit less relevant and invisible as you age. But this, dear Claire, is a conversation inside your own head. <laughs> yes. So this is what Julia Samuels called on a, Samuel called on our podcast the shitty committee inside your own mm-hmm. head. Uh, it's kind of ganging up on you. Um, so you need to reframe the conversation. So Philippa Perry, I remember her telling us that. When you feel this envy, it's a good thing because it's alerting you to the things you might want to do. So it's putting that in front of you. So it's giving you something to think about. So things you might want to do, not think about the other people doing it. So that's what envy can do. But emotions are not facts. So the outer world that they're going through is nothing to do with the inner world and the conversation you're having. So You see it from a positive point of view. I am alerted to, I might want to do this. I might want some change. I'm going to look at my life. I'm not going to think about other people. It's not really reality. And I think you also need to look at where that feeling comes from. I mean, I've talked about this before. I'm not particularly bothered what other people are doing. (laughs) It's just Mm. because I think as a child or an early teenager, I spent a lot of time in my own head getting to grips with all my thoughts around myself and and ignoring them if they weren't useful. So putting it to one side, but it clearly makes Claire feel very uncomfortable. So it's probably worth looking back in time to wonder why these feelings make her not feel not so valuable, why they make her feel particularly uncomfortable, but to sit with them a bit and then learn how to put them to one side and move on. What say you, Trish? Well, I like your advice there. I think that's very helpful. I mean, I would say that Claire's made a life choice based on what she and her family needs. Um, And she'd gone into it with her eyes wide open about the practicalities, you know, planning around money and sounds like she's comfortable with all that. And that's both brave and to be admired, I think. And I bet her friends really admire her for that and think so too. But what she probably couldn't know or couldn't predict it, how could you, is that lo- how losing a job, the status, the perks would make you feel on an emotional level, which is obviously what yeah. you've been talking about and how you how you understand those emotions, grieve that job, grieve that part of your life. You know, so there's kind of, you know, time to process that, process the feelings. And, you know, if she's regretting her choices, regret also is a good opportunity, isn't it, to kind of learn more about yourself and what you want from your life and your career. And if she's thinking about, do I want to get back on the corporate career ladder? Have I left it too late? It's probably worth taking a moment to think that it's not so much career ladder now, is it? It's a career pathway because people sort of go left, they go right. There isn't that traditional, you've got to be doing this for 10 years. So, she could look at her network. She could look at companies that she thinks she might like to work in. She could look at kind of jobs that she might be able to kind of spin off into. And if that leaves her feeling excited and, oh, yes, then go for it. But if it doesn't and you think, oh, my God, no stress. If your stress, if your stress buzzers go off. And then I think with your friends, if you've stopped talking about work, um, it might be that they might need to talk about work and offload about work and they might need support because despite all the expense accounts and health insurance perks and whatever else, they might be thinking the grass is greener and yes. you know their shitty committee yeah. might be going at it in their heads saying, oh, you've got to do what Claire did, you know. And um, so, yes, so we all have our, we all have our things going on, don't yes. we? So I think it's working out do you really regret this decision and working out how to kind of move forwards with your friends um, and, and just put that to one side? I think she probably doesn't regret it. But Millie... Should we get the evil twins in? What have they got to say? Millie says, for God's sake, woman, get a grip. No one's looking at you. Just get on with it. <laughs> right. That's what she okay. says. Okay. What's right. Marion say? 
Well, I think Marion's saying you're not judging your friends as much as you should be because instead... <laughs> Instead of working out what you really want from life, you should be spending your time looking at others and focusing on all the wrong stuff that they're doing. All their failures. All their failures, because <laughs> that's going to make you feel a whole lot better about the situation. <laughs> or you could just dump the lot of them and, and find some new friends whose jobs and life are less successful than yours. Maybe that's the route to go. Thank says you Marianne. very much, Marion. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we are now going to move to a very jolly positive lady who is neither Marion nor Millie or probably a little bit even nicer than us, Trish, and more oh, upbeat. So. We're going to yes. interview the very funny Angie Lamont. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. them we like to present you with a midlife woman whose uplifting and charismatic take on life is so upbeat it's positively contagious which is what we're about to do today when we welcome comedian actor producer author broadcaster screenwriter playwright and campaigner angie lamar to the show the 57 year old mum of three made history when she was the first black british comedian to appear live at the legendary harlem apollo in new york In an entertainment career spanning three decades, Angie has been a pivotal voice championing black women in comedy and beyond. From her 1994 play Funny Black Women on the Edge to her choice FM radio show The Ladies Room, she has been a game changer. In between stand-up shows and her work mentoring young people, Angie once deployed her chutzpah to turn a 15-minute chat slot with Whoopi Goldberg into an hour-long interview. Her adventures in show business are chronicled in her book Full Circle, Turning Your Gift Around, and Angie's accomplishments are even greater when you consider she was diagnosed as being severely dyslexic after she left school. She had her first child at 22, just as her comedy career began, and she's been married to Dave Prosper for 36 years. They have two sons and a daughter aged 35, 28 and 23. Comedian Mo Gilligan credits Angie as one of his biggest career inspirations and she performed last year on stage with him at the O2 in front of 20,000 people. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Angie. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. Right, well, I have to admit that when we had our little briefing phone call um, a few weeks ago before you came on the show, I had a bit of a girl crush on you because <laughs> I had a spring in my step all day after our um, chat. You've been through quite a lot in the past few years, but before we dive in um, and talk about all of that, you are speaking to us today from... Jamaica because you're back home with your mum Olive aren't you where are you what's going on yeah I'm in Maypay and Clarendon I kind of live in Jamaica and live in England but as my mum is getting older and kind of you know more frail I find myself here so I'll be here till May but I'm I'll gauge her at that point and then decide if I just extend it let's go back to the beginning because obviously Olive she was first generation immigrants to the UK is that right with your dad and you grew up um, in southeast London tell us about what it was like at that time in the 70s growing up and how it was for you at school I had quite a wonderful childhood to be Mm -hmm. honest I grew up with Pentecostal parents my parents are Christians and so I grew up in the church it was very much a family growing up you know like I've got four older brothers for me, it was a really a, a, a great family setting. My parents came from Jamaica with great family values, which is very much, you know, family is important. Our religion is important. Um, keeping a family together is important. And even though my parents had gone through difficult times and had a lot of things, you know, challenging them, I realised that they were fighters. But Angie, you went to school in Lewisham, didn't yeah. you? And you you were very rebellious at school and you were expelled. But it wasn't till you left school that you were diagnosed as severely dyslexic. And a lot of the t- your rebellion at school 
was around you being really vocal about the racism you were experiencing at school. So you then went into the entertainment world, but you must have formed your personality at that time. What kind of traits do you think formed that took you forward into the entertainment world with no education? Being at school and trying to explain to your parents that that in that generation that your teachers don't like you and you know it's because you're black because who feels it knows it at that point you just think i don't think you did the same to me that you did to her that doesn't feel fair and you try to explain it but everybody pushes you down but there's a part of my spirit i'd probably get it from my parents coming from jamaica which was you know that's actually wrong miss that's wrong sir i don't think you should say that that's not very nice because that's not what my mum and dad would say to me at home. And then I had the humorous side, which was I'd crack jokes. So my way of getting out of things was to crack a joke. So if I felt embarrassed by the teachers or I felt upset or feeling like I needed to pull that strength in, my thing was jokes. I told jokes. I got laughs. And when you hear a laugh and you think, I created that, that's a real big thing. So friends came to me to worry about the bully. So if somebody was getting bullied, they'd come to me and I'd be the one that'd walk up to people and say, you can't do that. You're not going to do that to my friends. So I was this person that always stood up. And I think it's because I had older brothers who taught me how to fight. That I think I traveled into the entertainment business and especially into stand up. I think I'm so fearless that it used to scare me. <laughs> I was just like, I don't care what you think about me. And it hasn't let me down. You know, I haven't felt like I care what people think. I care if you don't laugh, because that's my job. And I'm working hard to do that. But I've worked out in school that I can make people laugh. So I trust that. I make my family laugh. I trust that. And that's all I did was trust what I went through. And when I was at school, I was quite rebellious. And, and then I got kicked out of school because they saw me as problematic, you know, always outside the headmistress's office. And she'd come and say, Andrew, what are you doing out here? And I'd say, well, what are you doing out here? You know, <laughs> I thought that was funny, but no, it wasn't. How so, did your parents respond to that? Because I, my parents were Irish immigrant parents. We grew up in the Catholic church in North London. And it was, everything was, you had to behave properly. You had to, you know, and school was so much about discipline, wasn't it? And, you know, being seen and not heard and all of that. Did your parents support you? How did they Well, at the beginning, that? they had no idea. I mean, mm -hmm. they sent this little angel to school. Mm -hmm. And it was like, she went off and her socks was up here. And they didn't know I had trousers underneath my skirt. You know, <laughs> and that, I was like, bye, mum, bye, dad. So when they did find out about the reports on the school parents' evening, my parents used to look at me like, who are you? And I used to think, I don't know. I don't know what happens to me when I come to school. Mum, it's them. They're doing this mm -hmm. to me. So as a performer, I love performing. And when they were in my drama class, they were like, She's an angel here, but a little devil over here. What is going on? It was then that my mum realised, you like the arts, you like acting. So I started to go to drama clubs <sighs> and she just saw me blossom. That's brilliant, isn't it? For parents, you've just got to find yeah. your kids their wow, isn't it? What they really love and what they're good at, I think. We've had quite a few comedians on the show and we had Arabella Weir and Angela Barnes. And one of the things they've told us is that it was quite tough to be a woman in stand-up, um, particularly earlier for this generation uh, as they were going through, because women then just weren't seen funny and they just weren't given the breaks. Now, you were a woman in stand-up and you were on stage in London, but you're also a black woman, so it must have been really tough for you. What keeps you going and what situations did you navigate? Because you've got quite a lot of grace and elegance around how you deal with everything, um, I know from our chats, but what, what's in you that made it work because you were the first British stand-up comedian at the famous Harlem Apollo weren't you yeah. so how did you get to that point I mean it must have been quite hard work first of all stand-up comedy is hard work and then yeah. it's difficult for women because of the way men treat us they treat us like oh we've got a woman on the bill for all you ladies out there that want to giggle you know <laughs> <laughs> it was makes me like very cross aren't you? <laughs> it was almost like you're trying to fight through this whole myth of I'm funny because I'm Britain's first black female. So when I came on, if they wanted a woman and a black person, I was literally two for one. I get the bookings based on, well, we've ticked both boxes. For me, sometimes the mainstream circuit was a bit difficult because it was trying to understand 
what you think of me and what I think of you and how the two come together. Because when I play a black audience, I'm straight in. Whereas when I was playing the main street and like, like the working men club, like sometimes I'd walk into a club, the whole place would be silent, like, oh, dear. And I think, I can't make this audience laugh. This is going to be a nightmare. And then you walk on stage and go, funny is funny. I've got to get my story across to you and make you laugh. What made it easier for me? This is why a lot of women drop out because children come in and travel is difficult because somebody will call you and say, you've got to get to Hull tonight. And you're thinking, how do I get to Hull? Do I stay over? Because if I stay over, that hotel fee is going to be quite expensive and that's half the money gone. So will I get back the same night? But what really cut that out for me was my, my husband, my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband now, he loved driving. So I'd phone him up and say, Dave, I've got a gig in wherever. And he'd be like, all right, I'll finish work and then we'll drive up. Then when we had children, we used to put the kids in the car. So I promised them McDonald's on the way home, do my gig, jump in the car and drive back home. So that's where a lot of women used to drop out because it was mm -hmm. that travel, that safety. It's a hard road. It's, mm -hmm. it's difficult. Can we talk about your material? Because uh, I've watched, been watching some very funny clips and it strikes me that we have a little segment on this show called Nostalgia Noodle, where we look back to sort of things from the 70s and 80s. And, you know, I was watching a very funny clip uh, earlier about um, you having seen Roots for the first time on TV, <laughs> going yeah. into school and talking about it. So is a lot of your material based on your experiences as a kind of Gen X woman who's grown up in those times? Absolutely. You know, the first rule of comedy for me was write what you know, tell your story and put your funny in that. And I find everything funny. You know, some in the worst place, people go, Angie, you really would find a joke there. Absolutely, I would. You know, and so when I remember watching Roots and thinking, damn, these white people are terrible. How are we going to go to school <laughs> the next day? So we go to school the next day and I'm looking at all my friends who are my best friends, black and white. And all the black girls are looking at each other like, get over here. We've, we've got to get away from them. You know? <laughs> your friends will be going, are you not playing out? And I'm like, no, I saw Roots. And in my head, that's funny. After a while, you start to trust yourself and go, here's my line. You know, I know when I'm over the line. And it's nice to go over the line and get, oh, you're not going there, Angie. And you think, oh, yes, I am. Yeah. What about being a woman in midlife? What is great is that my audience have followed me through my whole life, like my mm -hmm. children, and they know all my kids' names and stuff. So when I um, was going through midlife crisis, not crisis, going through my hormonal changes, mm -hmm. as they say, I'd question the audience because I'd be sweating on stage thinking, I've only been on 10 minutes, I haven't worked, why am I gushing? Sometimes ladies would walk up and hand me a tissue like, <laughs> and I weren't getting the hint at that point. I was like, I oh, know, these lights are really hot. And then it started to dawn on me that you're getting on, love. This is what's happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you feel young and cute, but your body's saying, we're still this age, darling. So at that point, my body started to change and my audience started to come with me on that. Even when I had my hysterectomy, people always like to keep their stories quiet. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, I've got to talk about it because I've spoken about everything else. This is something I want to share. And because my audience is my age as well, they look like me, they feel like me, they're my age group. They are going through it too. And they want me to do the funny side of it. So you're 57 now and you yeah. went through the perimenopause in your 40s. But what did you go through that led up to you having a hysterectomy? Because you had other gynecological issues, didn't you? And, and it really affected your mental health, didn't it? Yeah, it does. It's something that you, you know, having really heavy periods and then finding out that that thing that everyone's talking about, which is fibroids, is something that you've got. And then my periods were just so bad, like you couldn't move. I couldn't move for the fact that there was so, it was very yeah. heavy. And then I couldn't move for the fact that I was in pain. Then there was this cloud that was coming over my head. I stopped doing performance for a while and started to write and direct and produce because I felt safer there. I felt like I could just be the person over here. I didn't have to be the performer, which takes another, another energy from you. And at that point, I just thought, well, maybe, I, maybe it's over for me. Maybe, maybe I'll just become this quiet writer that's retired in the Caribbean and gets her glasses out and eats lots of vegetables. 
I saw myself like that. And I was trying to explain to my kids that I'm changing. I don't feel like that. My friends were changing. I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to party. I didn't want to go to events anymore. Because your body changes, you're always protecting yourself and protecting, especially if you're you're flowing and you're thinking, I can't stand up because everything's going to gush out. And it just felt horrible. So I stopped. And then when I went back to the doctors, that's when they said to me, your fibroids are, because I was getting big, but I was getting big in one way. Couldn't do my shoes up. It was like, I feel like I'm pregnant. But the size of my fibroids were over a six month pregnancy. They said I have a a full hysterectomy. And I thought, Well, can't I keep some bits so that I can still have my periods or I can still do... quite emotional, isn't it, to have a hysterectomy? It's not just sort of, you know, a medical treatment. It's a kind of end of that part of your life, isn't it? I don't know what I felt. I I know I felt relieved because I remember doing up my shoe thinking, oh, oh my God, I was expecting this big weight loss. Like now that I've had this hysterectomy, I can't believe how skinny I'm going to be now. (laughs) And then I realised nothing. It's just my stomach was a little flatter and that was it. (laughs) But it was just the sadness afterwards of the healing process and feeling like I don't have certain things in my body. My body's changing and my body's not supporting me anymore. So that's when I went back to the doctors and they put me on HRT and I was like, okay, feeling a bit better now. Mm-hmm. And I remember I hadn't done stand-up for years. I was more performing and writing and directing. And I really had written off stand-up because I thought I won't remember because I couldn't remember things. So I was yeah. thinking, my memory is the bit that worries me because I've got to stand on stage and remember an hour and a half of material. If I can't remember that, then I'm, I'm finished. Mm-hmm. And then once I started on HRT, I started to feel like, oh, my God. I've got, got your this- mojo back. It was quite a nice mm-hmm. little place, isn't it? <laughs> you know? When you had your hysterectomy, did they talk you through you're going to go into a menopause you can have HRT. It's like you have to go cold turkey and lose yeah. all those hormones. Did they offer you HRT? Did they talk to you about that? Not at all. I think oh. when I left the hospital, it was very much like um, go and see your doctor and then take it from there. But I was so busy in the healing because um, on the surgery that I had, it opened up again and I went mm. back to the hospital. Oh, gosh. And the thing is, when you talk to your friends, there's one who doesn't need HRT and there's yeah. one who wouldn't live without it. There's one who healed after and was jogging around the park after four weeks. And there's one who's four years and still isn't really recovered. So as much as you're getting all this advice and you're reading all the information, it mm. really is personal. And you've just got to listen to your body and feel your way through it. Like, I don't feel great. Oh, I sh- do I feel this cloud over my head? If I'm a, such a positive person, mm-hmm. this cloud doesn't sound like me. So something's not right. But you've been actually very pivotal in campaigning for um, the representation of black women in all the kind of literature around um, gynecological problems and cancers and things. But this must have been a tougher thing. I mean, we're all expected to in- endure this anyway as women and we know two-thirds of women are just fobbed off with antidepressants um, from their GPs but how did you begin to look around you and think but hold on a minute there are no black women in this conversation around menopause I mean there isn't much it's only the last year or so that women have been talked about what what was your thinking around that I think because I used to do so much work in the community, radio yeah. shows and stuff like that, I was always fighting for somebody. Some It's so easy that I spoke about it when I was at school. I could fight for somebody. But then when you have to fight for yourself, it means putting yourself out there saying, actually, I've got this too, or I'm suffering from this too. I remember back in the 80s, we, we fought for more black women to be recognized for checking their breast and having imagery on black, of black women in those pamphlets because growing up, my mum and that generation didn't think breast cancer was something that they needed to worry about. On their leaflets, it was like uh, middle-class white women mm-hmm. suffered from that. So we campaigned for that. Hysterectomies or, or menopause is something that we're all trying to be vocal about because now that generation is older. And now they're saying, well, we've got radios, we've got campaigns, we've got brands. We can actually speak about it and be okay about saying that this is our age. I'm not scared of telling people my age. I'm very proud that I've got to this age as opposed to, I know some friends who don't like to talk about their age. They just want to be, and they're actors and I understand mm. that they don't want to have that issue around casting. But there comes a point when you have to say, look, I'm 57. That's what it is. So therefore I'm going through this. If I can speak out about it, and there are a few other 
black women who have started up the black menopause and, you know, having that yeah. discussion. It's fantastic because I know my mum didn't have that. All I know is that she was very hot and that was it. Let's take you back a little bit to your career. So you have three children and you had your first child at 22, didn't you? It was a bit of a surprise. Um, and as you got more and more successful, you were offered some work in America, weren't you? But you had to turn it down, didn't you? Because you decided you wanted to be at home. To tell us about that, where we could have seen you on the screens, in because it was quite a big role that you were were asked to go and talk about, isn't it? Yeah, I think for me it was like at that point where black female comedians were growing. I went over to America, and doors were opening, like auditioning for the Cosby Show, having a reading, and then playing the Apollo. And these were just because like I say, I walk up to anything and say, can I have? My brother always said to me, they're either going to say yes or no. <laughs> so I remember going to the Apollo and saying, look, I know that Chuck Sutton runs the Apollo. I'd like to play the Apollo. And they came down with security because they probably thought, where's this British woman coming from? A bit off key. So I'm there saying, look, it's been my dream to play the Apollo. Can I play the Apollo? And he looked at me and went, well, you're going to be my special guest tomorrow. And I was, mm -hmm. wow, thank you. And so I went through America like that. And contacted the Cosby show and said to them, I pretended to be an agent, my agent, saying, hi, Angie's in town. She's only seen a few <laughs> people. She'd like to see you. And they were like, sure, tell us more. So I went to see them, did a reading. And then they said to me, something's coming up, which is um, a different world. And we think that you would be really ideal for some roles that, that could be coming up. And I remember doing, do you remember Video Diaries? Yeah, mm. yeah, yes, BBC one. That's right. So all that was being filmed because Video Diary, they had me there for like 10 weeks. And so I had to stay in New York for this audition. But I was also booked to go to LA to finish this documentary. So that's when I had to make that decision to say, well, I believe that this documentary that I'm making is actually going to be bigger than the role that you're going to offer me. So I'm going to go with this um, documentary because that's actually what I'm supposed to be doing. But thank you anyway. Only to come back to England and they said that they felt that the documentary didn't have any balance, like it was too positive. There was no crying in the alley, like, oh my God, I died on stage. It was oh. like, guess who I met? Guess who I met? It was too up. You've always been good at asking, haven't you, people? Because I remember it mentions in your book that Whoopi Goldberg, you were offered an interview and they said you've got 15 minutes with Whoopi, don't keep her any longer. Yes. You had an hour and a half in the end, didn't you? Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, I got to Whoopi's heart. You know, she came into Planet Hollywood and I was like, OK, Whoopi, I've got 15 minutes with you. Can I just be reading your book, be at the bar, and you come over to me and go, hey, Angie, and I look at the book and I go, and you say... <laughs> She looked at me and the agent gave me a look that to this day, it was so piercing. And I remember looking at the agent thinking, I've got one chance. And if I was met somebody who was inspired by me and they did that to me, I'd be giving them all the, um, the time. So Whoopi saw that in me and she was like, okay. And then her agent kept saying, hey, Whoopi. And she went, don't worry about it. And you've met some other and interviewed other amazing celebrities as a, there's a very good Stevie Wonder story that we love. <laughs> Stevie Wonder, honestly, when you're talking to Stevie Wonder, now I'm on Choice FM, I've got number one radio show Saturday morning and everybody wants to get on the show. So when you get Stevie Wonder, but you've got to go to Stevie's event and you walk in and he looks up. Um, I say looks up because I know he's blind. Yeah. You feel like he's looking at you because he's mm -hmm. talking to you like, I'm thinking, are you sure you're blind, blind? Like, like, can you see shapes? You know, when you want to talk like that to somebody, but you know he's absolutely. And then we're talking and he's just talking to me and talking about his music. Now I'm a big fan, so I can go into the history of his music. And then I said to him, it's my birthday. And to my surprise, Stevie Wonder went, happy birthday, Andy. <laughs> happy not many people can say that. Stevie right. Wonder sung happy birthday to them. And then he finished it off with, you know, and you didn't bring me no cake. And I'm thinking, oh. why didn't I bring cake? Do you think he thinks everyone says that to him? So yeah. that they can say that, but you were genuine. I was absolutely genuine. And, you know, the security, I've got a thing for security. Like, I can, I, I can get past any security. I don't know what it is. It's just that I have this thing that I look at them like, I could be your sister, your wife you I need your help to get me into that room and no matter what they just go come on 
That is a skill to have. Now, you had um, quite a sort of, well, you talked about it, a bit of a, a tough time in lockdown. And because you're you and you decided to help other people out at the same time, you noticed other people were a bit lonely in lockdown. And yeah. you began this thing called We Walk Wednesday, which is sort of one of the ways I found you on, on Instagram when I started to follow you. And that was gathering people together on their own voluntarily to to just go for a walk. And it was really predominantly gathering black women, women of colour together. And then you got people to come along and do a bit of mentoring and you got people to chat. And it's now kind of sort of blossomed, hasn't it? It sort of covers yeah. the country. What Tell us a little bit about We Walk Wednesday and how people can be involved. Well, for me, I'm a, I, I've, I've got a dog, I've got my little chocolate Labrador. And, you know, one thing about dogs, you will walk any day, any weather, you've got to go regardless. So for me, walking is such a, it, it's so relaxing. It's great for my mental health. And I just love meeting people. So my park is a great park, Hillyfields Park. And I remember I was talking to a friend of mine who's a comedian who lives in the same area. He has a dog, had a dog, but he doesn't, but he keeps the walks up with me. And I remember thinking lockdown, what could, what could we do? Maybe there's some people who would like to walk who don't have a dog. Maybe a few people would like to walk. So I went on my um, Facebook and said, anybody want to walk on Wednesday, Hillyfields Park, seven o'clock, you know, a little stroll if, it, if you need company. Now I'm thinking, no one's going to come out. So I'm standing at the place where I said to me, and I see about 20 women walking from there, 10, 15, 20, 30, just walking towards me. And I'm thinking, where, where are they going? And I said to my daughter, oh my God, they think I'm fit. <laughs> oh, they think you're going to take them on a kind of yeah this let's go I was talking like a stroll so they get in front of me and my daughter um she's quite fit and I said to her can you do some stretches do some stretches you've got to do stretches. you've got to do something she's like mum I don't do that I said look just stretch and bow and everyone's looking at me I'm like yeah let's just march on the spot and we stretch and we're, and we're just making it up because we don't know what we're doing because we weren't expecting that I really was expecting about four or five people mm-hmm. And then I do laughter therapy. So I thought, I tell you what, I'll add something to it. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Let's do some laughter. Let's get the body excited. And on the Monday, I had met this guy that was riding around on his bike playing soul music. So I said to him, well, I'm going to do a little walk on. Why don't you come around? And I was literally just saying that. He comes over the hill playing, <laughs> forget me now. And the whole park is dancing. And when he joins me, I'm like, that's right. We've got Keep Fit. We've got a little bit of music and laughter therapy. Let's walk. And that was it. And every week, and then other people said, can you come to our parts? I said, well, I can't come to your park, but if you've been ambassador, I'll get some T-shirts made up. So we were doing it on the fly, get a website and everything, and just built it. Now we've got 20 parks. We often talk about women in, in midlife, their careers can get a bit wobbly we don't know where we're going we might kind of get made redundant did you ever imagine where your career might go and the opportunities that would come from one thing and another and another I knew that I'd always wanted to perform but what I didn't know especially coming out of school when I had to go back to get my education go back to learn how to do things that I didn't get at school I actually thought actually you're quite intelligent Angie you really are you know and so you can take up this pen and write and enjoy it so as I've gone through life, things have come up and I've gone, I'll give that a go. I don't mind doing that. You know, we used to be taught jack of all trades, master of none, which yeah, is a lie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we master so many things, especially as mothers as well. You master negotiation, you master how to be diplomatic. You master so many things that if you've got the confidence to start something new and say, well, I'm going to try this, I'm going to go and live in Jamaica, actually. I definitely know I'm going to die. And I know that my funeral must be packed. And I said to my kids, put sold out. out of the mood. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> to, the, to the end, I'm bringing in the number. Oh, love it. And, and know that I lived a great life. We can't all be Angie because of this amazing positivity. <laughs> but if you're, a, so in, in midlife, women come unstuck. They unravel a little bit. Lots of women do. And that's part of the reason we set up the podcast. What would your advice be to a woman who's in her 40s now? It's all a bit wobbly. She's lost her confidence. She can't remember anything. So her mojo's gone. She doesn't even know she can do her job properly. She's got a lot of um, responsibilities. What's your advice, the simple things that women 
could do to kind of feel like you do about that situation? Because you've been through it now. One of the biggest things I say to people is go and learn something new with new people who don't know you. We go through life carrying the same people with us who know our story and we don't get to share or reinvent ourselves because they, you know, I know you, you don't want to do that. You know, they give you that type of um, feedback. Whereas if you go to a new place and remember the child at in the teens, that child, speak to that child and say, what did you used to want to do? You wanted to paint, right? You wanted to do this, right? Remember you can't swim, but you really want to swim? Go and learn how to do those things because then you'll meet people around on their journey who don't know who you are. So you can be who you want to be and they will encourage that. So I'll always say to people, go and learn something new. So before we let you go into the glorious Jamaican sunshine, (laughs) Angie, we'd love to know about the time you met Maya Angelou because obviously she's a hero for women worldwide and it's possibly going to be the biggest name drop. Lorraine <laughs> likes to name drop on the show, but I think this might out name drop all name Maya. drops. When I walked into the room, it was like there was a light around her. I'm telling you, it was like, hi. And I went over and shook her hand and I tilted my head like, pleased to meet you. And she just went, never bow. Don't bow to anybody but God. And I was like, well, you're Maya Angelou. So you're <laughs> <laughs> Quite close to God here. Yeah. yeah. You're kind of goodish. We could pick a God. <laughs> yeah. It will be you. So, and I remember sitting there thinking, this woman is so amazing. Everything she says. And I remember asking her about her faith and said, you're a Christian. And she goes, oh, I work on being a Christian every day. There's every day new challenges. And I take that away because every day there's a new challenge like you wake up and you think how am I going to get through this day what of yesterday didn't really work that I don't want to repeat and she was just this woman that was given such sound advice that you forget you're interviewing her you just let her talk it's almost rude to answer a question it's like you speak we'll just record what next then you're writing children's book you're also are you writing a movie as well do we see you doing any more stand-up because you did stand up last year i think or the year before with mo gilligan didn't you yes and mo gilligan has gone and re, you know given us life this the older generation people who inspired him so that was really great walking onto the o2 20 000 people i'm thinking a oh, big gig big gig <laughs> <laughs> and that was great so i will get up to do some more stand-up i probably want to tour next year i'm writing a movie um two movies so it's writing movies and just really being here for my mom and just enjoying life Thank you. Thank you for coming on Postcards from Midlife. Thank you for having me. I love this. Well, I have to say, it's all been about meeting your childhood heroes today. Angie Lamar got Maya Angelou. I got Glenn Hoddle. It's quite exciting. <laughs> all very noodly, though. All very nostalgic. Slightly more so... inspired by Angie, but... <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But listen nostalgia noodle you had an idea for this didn't you because we're sort of running out of ideas because we've done so many of them to keep thinking but what go on you you go first what inspired me is i've been doing a bit of work with schools and i was just thinking about this massive kind of pressure kids get to get Mm. to university or further education but actually at the minute there's a massive drive for apprenticeships so a lot of kids are being offered you know straight into work Mm -hmm. get going now that's how I started left school at 16 straight into work so I was thinking we could noodle back to our first day in our kind of either apprenticeships or our first proper work day because obviously my daughter's doing this now in uh, she's being a mechanical engineer in Norwich for a jet engine building company so we're going through all of that with her so I went back to when I had my first day at the Cornish Times 1872 Mm. (laughs) Um, and I was thinking what did I wear on my first day and then I was remembering Trish it brought back another little noodle do you remember the catalogues the little wood catalogues all the little oh yeah so in prep for my first proper day I thought I need to look as adult as possible because I was so young I was only 16 so I got myself a little grey skirt from the catalogue and oh. there was such anti- and a little fluffy blue mohair jumper and there was such anticipation, <laughs> wasn't there, because you ordered it and then you had to wait weeks for it oh, to arrive. And then you were paying it off week and then by you week, were pe- still you? paying it off. Yes. So what you yes. wore to work was really important because it often mm. took ages and cost ages as well. Yeah, no, so that, uh, that took me back and a little pair of 
mild height heels. Um, oh. so I guess you'd call it kitten height, a um, little pair of grey heels. A kitten heel. And look where look where it all led. Look where it all led. Yes, look where the it Cornish all led. The Cornish Times. I shouldn't say it like that, should you I? You can't do well, Cornish just, accents. You're no, not I can't. To, you're not no. Oh, we can. I've had so many jobs before I got a, the job that started. So I don't, I don't think we need to do the care home or McDonald's or any of those, do no. we? That's not what you're talking about. Okay, so my first proper job was um, doing advertising production on something called LA Week. Right. Now, what do you think LA Week was about? It's not Los Angeles, is it? It certainly wasn't. Loose ankles? Local authority. Oh. Lo- lo- <laughs> it's lo- actually, it might have been LA News. Local authority news. Got to so start somewhere, councils. Trish. Got to I know. start somewhere. And I used to do the uh, all the little classified advertisements and sort of weird stuff at the back. I used to produce all of that with the old uh, typesetting. There wasn't even desktop publishing. No back in those olden days. And you know what was really awful? My first day on the job, I can't remember what I wore, but what I do remember is sitting on this bank of desks and the man opposite me smoked cigars all day long because you could smoke in offices back in those days. And I thought, oh my God, am I going to be able to stay in this job? This is my career. It's taking off. I'm on local authority week. And um, a cigar nearly put paid to it all. You know what Millie would have done, wouldn't you? Don't you? Oh gosh. She would have taken it and stubbed it out on his hand. (laughs) On his hand. Here we are at the end of Postcards from Midlife. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, As you know, new episodes are available. Really helpful if you press the download and subscribe um, because then we automatically drop into your inbox. If you want to meet us, this is a very exciting opportunity mm. for people who uh, would like to come into the room and have all their midlife questions answered, not just by us, but proper experts. Meet all our celebrity guests. We are having a live two-day festival in May on the 19th and 20th. It's going to be brilliant. There'll be shopping and champagne and cake as well. Trish, how do we get tickets for it? Well, all you have to do is go to this website, postcardsfrommidlifelive.co.uk. Exciting. Tell all your friends about us. Tell tell them about the show. Tell them about the live. Um, and if you want to have a further engagement with us, this is just we mm. offer everything, don't we? Oh, my God. Yeah, nonstop. Pop over to our private Facebook group. Become a member. You have to answer three questions and agree to abide by Trish's rules. And you can join in the <laughs> chat there. Um, we are on the Facebook all the time, so we are trying to drop in and answer questions and put up helpful resources. So thank you for listening and it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. The new ending, Trish. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.